Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another week of the Invisible Truths podcast. I'm your host, Ben Tapper, and I'm here with a friend from Nashville, uh, Melissa Green. Melissa is the co-founder and leader of Imaginarium, and Melissa and I know each other because we are both graduates of Christian Theological Seminary. We uh, have our MDivs, uh, and so we connected there, and we have stayed in touch since then. I've also been attending the religious community uh, imaginarium that she um, helps lead. And so that's how we're connected. So welcome, Melissa. I'm excited that you're here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. One of the things I really want to touch on today is um, this topic of kind of religious conversion. Um, there aren't many people in my life that I meet that I feel like have probably experienced a a faith-based conversion as seismic as I have, but you are one of those people that I suspect probably has. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I'm wondering if you can talk about um, your religious journey broadly, um, and then specifically, what were the touch points that, that, that made you begin to pivot and shift along the way? Such a lovely question. Okay, I how to talk about this broadly is sometimes hard, so stop me if I'm getting too detailed. But I grew up very conservative um, Southern Baptist, so in a mega church situation, um, we were there three days, sometimes four days a week. Um, very committed. It is literally not just the church I grew up in; it was the worldview I was given. Right. And it, it led everything that we did as a family um, and everything that I did in my own personal life. I also went to public school, though, which helped me, thank goodness, along the way, <laughs> be a little bit broader than just my evangelical. Um, I, I consider it pretty fundamentalist also. I should name that at this point. Now, looking back, I can say that. So I began, I'm a very strong-willed person, and I probably started that at a young age. And I can say that reflectively now as I have a 10 year old daughter who's very strong willed and just, she knows who she is. She asks questions. I was of the same vein, right? So I asked a lot of questions and had no problem pushing back on authority um, early on. So when things came up in my Southern Baptist church, such as I was probably, I can't date it specifically, but it was either late middle school early high school, but the pastor spoke from the platform, you were unequally yoked if you dated or married, God forbid, someone of a different um, race or color. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing that. And again, because I went to, I was not, although the church was predominantly white, the public school was not. We were very diverse and I had a very diverse group of friends and I cheered and was the, on the, you know, for the football team and whatnot. So just surrounded by a lot of people, thank goodness. And I was like, wait, wait, that, that, wait, what? Like the Bible says that, or you're like, who said God says that, you know? So my questions began then. And I started saying, okay, I, I don't agree with what this pastor, my pastor just said. So what does that mean? And do I have to take everything verbatim that comes from the platform and that, that, that equals truth. 
And I sort of figured out early on, no, you don't have to agree with everything. And it doesn't mean that that person in authority is always right. So then I went to college and I ended up at a uh, Pentecostal charismatic uh, liberal arts school, um, the Church of God specific in Tennessee. So this, I moved from Florida to Tennessee. And I did that because of their musical program. They had an amazing music program and I was going there for um, vocal performance, Bachelor of Arts. And I knew, I should mention, I knew that I wanted to sing full time and that that was the verbiage I would use then specifically was the call of God in my life was to go into full-time ministry using my voice. So I went there for their music and I was just exposed right away to different kinds of Christians. And all of a sudden I was having to grapple with, okay, this Bible that at the time was my very top authority, even above God and Jesus, even though I wouldn't have known to name it as that. Um, but these other loving Christians walk away with this text and have very different ideas about salvation and about the afterlife and about what even sin looks like and, and uh, when forgiveness plays in from God, like just very drastically different ideas than my Baptist upbringing. And so once again, I had to reframe, okay, it's not just that my pastor doesn't hold the corner on truth. I don't think the Baptist holds the corner on truth. In much like I was told that they did. Like everybody was wrong, right? It was either Baptist or nobody. Um, Episcopalians, they were going to hell. Like it was just, everybody's out, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. So those questions and that pushback, and I just decided at that point at the college level that I would not just ask questions and push back, um, but also not dismiss these people that again, considered themselves loving, devoted followers of Jesus and, and Christians at the time. Um, and so what does that mean? So I chose to read more and um, I've been a reader all my life and I still am a lover of all things books, but I just, I committed to myself at that point in my journey, like, okay, I'm going to read, I'm going to read more than just the people that line up with my answers. I'm going to expose myself to more. Now, early on that started like, I'm going to read Billy Graham and Dr. Tony Evans, who was a black pastor, right? And they felt like far, yeah, yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like just different experiences, different ways to interpret scripture. And that was like, Ooh, I'm getting edgy. Sure. Um, <laughs> so uh, traveled at that when I was at school, I traveled the world some and began to be exposed just to different cultures and different people still within Christian bubbles and conservative bubbles, if you will but nonetheless different. And that helped me begin to, again, remain open to maybe I don't have it all figured out and I don't need to just keep reiterating what I've been taught. I need to really find this for myself and go on a journey with God. That was very much my language I used then. Then I left school, um, ended up traveling with a Christian band called Truth, which was big in the Southeast. And it had been around like since 71 and they traded out their members every couple of years. and so ended up touring with them and really toured the world. We went to Africa, we were in the Philippines, we were in Hong Kong. Um, I'd been to China already. And so this is when it was really pushed come to shove at that point for me, where questioning my, my, like my theology was in question. It was literally that I was on the stage in Africa and I remember touting off, I was already like a public speaker, even during the, you know, singing the concerts. And so they would tap on me to sing. And I remember holding my Bible on a stage in a little um, church in Africa. 
this is in um, the Ivory Coast, so middle, middle Africa, and saying, we were looking to a, a town that was full of this um, um, disease called the Garuli ulcer, very similar to leprosy. So they are, they're war-torn, they're, they're sick, they are AIDS-infected, like so many things happening, they're very poor. And I remember looking at them and holding up my Bible and setting up this song and saying, I remember, you know, the Bible says David speaks, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. And I was like, holy shit, like you're looking at people. Like that, this isn't your comfortable white American church where you're spouting that off and everybody's so comfortable and good and, and goes home to a, you know, a bed and a house and food and um, health. Like I was looking, so all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay, yep. if my theology doesn't work here, is it me or is it my theology? Yep. Because I think it has to sort of work everywhere probably if it's this higher truth. So those questions pushed me. I moved on to move to Nashville and join another um, music group called Avalon. It was a little bit bigger than truth. <laughs> I stepped in when they, they had started in 97 and I joined them in 2002 when their soprano left. And when I stepped into that, I was really hesitant of being involved in the music industry because I'd already seen enough of the negative in my two years with truth. But then I really felt like, no, this is good work to be done. And it, it was. I don't mean at all to diminish it. And uh, in the meantime, traveling and had journeyed with and had friends that had been gay their whole lives and all that I'd known them. And my journey with that specifically pushed more theological questions to the surface in my own life on all these things that I was taught. You know, at first it was, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. That's definitely where I came from. And then it was, you know, why would you choose this? Um, early on, there's the questions of like, God doesn't uh, honor this. And why would you choose this? And then coming to realize, oh, for these specific people, they weren't choosing anything um, at that time in my life. And then I had to grapple with, okay, if God made you like this, why would God condemn you? Like all of those things, it just kept little notches to move me further and further forward and more and more open. And so I finally, um, it was Obama's first term. And we voted for him in Nashville, Tennessee, and I was still a part of this music industry. And that was the biggest deal. Like, it was like, who are you? Like, how dare you? You know, I was, I was pushed to the margins of that bubble, if you will. Um, but I was fine with it because although at the moment, the first term, I was not ready to say theologically, I had the backing of why I supported same-sex marriage. I knew I supported my friends and I knew that it was a civil right that my friends deserved. So I was at, like, that was another notch to move me on and move me forward. Then I left Avalon and ended up being hired immediately at a church, which now we can call progressive Christian church. It was interdenominational um, the pastor at the time said, there is no glass ceiling here for women. I see your leadership skills and your musical skills. And I, um, so I'd love to bring you in as a leader. I'd love to name you pastor. I see your pastoral heart and I'd love to take you through the ordination process. So that happened over three years and I ended up working at that church for eight years. And that church ended up being later, clearly progressive, evangelical, progressive post-evangelical, even towards the end of my time there. And during our time, um, we ended up shifting the church and the community to become LGBT uh, plus inclusive, um, which was huge. And again, I finally started understanding more of ultimately where the Bible came from, how it was put together, 
um, which loosened my grip on it and loosened its authority too in my life. Um, and so that sort of shifted everything and I began to stop looking and it's just a thing I've said multiple times, like quit focusing on black words on a white page and start looking up into the eyes of the humanity that's right in front of me and how can I honor them and their belovedness and their worth and what they deserve. And then how do we live in this community together? So just slowly but surely, I went from <laughs> Southern Baptist evangelical, very conservative, through a Pentecostal phase, through a non-denominational phase, through a progressive evangelical, post-evangelical phase, now to what I am peacefully saying is post-Christian. And that to me is post-institution. And I resigned from that church three years ago and started Imaginarium, which we spoke of, which is a nonprofit, but it's non-religious, but it's ultimately still trying to cultivate a spiritual space because I believe all of life is spiritual and that um, we center these values on inherent worth magic. We call it magic, but inherent worth and magic, connectedness and responsibility. So that's the short version. There's <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a few different books in there, I think. <laughs> As I went through my own journey, there have been moments that I, I, when I find myself on the edge of growth and it felt hella frightening, mm. right? And then I had to, I had to make a choice. Do I continue on this path or do I try to turn back and get comfortable? And I'll be honest, there were times where I tried to turn back. I tried to like, just believe, like mm -hmm. I was told if I just believed, right, it'd yeah. be fine. And that never, it never worked for me. I can't, yeah. like, I couldn't just stop asking questions. Um, and so you know, as you're nodding your head, I'm guessing you were, you're thinking of those moments, you know, where you kind of come to the edge and you've got to decide, what am I going to do? Can you speak about what it was like in those moments and how you made the choice to continue growing in essence? Yeah, I just immediately thought about how the comfort of certainty ran out and it just kept running out. And that's, that is where my comfort was given to me early on was that there's this idea that and multiple ideas and doctrines about God and about humanity that we need to hold true and they're certain and just believe them. But when life kept butting up against those things um, in so many ways, be it with people or relationships or my own experience, I didn't even mention um, my, I lost my 32 year old brother-in-law to cancer um, in 2006. Gosh, 2006 left my sister a widow at 32 and a three-year-old son. And so coming to grip just with uh, circumstances, be it my own or others, where life, like the, the theological categories I was given, life busted them wide open. And it was fearful to begin to let go, <laughs> but it was also more about the, I don't, you can't, I can't find comfort. Like, again, this theology doesn't fit over this circumstance. And I was always told like theology will cover it, like God will cover it, blah, blah, blah. And by well-meaning people, no doubt, um, and I've probably said it, it's probably on YouTube clips, multiple places where I said it or I have sang it and it's in, you know, it's going to be there forever and I'm in. So thank goodness we change and we learn. But yeah, I just think I realized living without certainty was not what was to fear. What was to fear more so was me not being able to look myself in the eye, to lay my head down on the pillow at night, to look someone else in the eye and say like, I see you, I hear you, I'm not gonna try to fit your struggle or your circumstance into some box where it doesn't fit and it was never supposed to fit. Um, so those things urged me forward, like pulled me. I still feel like a lure and I don't know 
who or what to attribute that to, you know, God, the universe, whatever. There is this lure of like, we can do better. There is more. And it's not because I think anyone, nor am I trying to any longer um, define what that thing is pulling me on. And more like, okay, but the work is right in front of us. And how do I deal with this situation or this person or honor the situation or this person in a different way where those old answers, again, don't fit. But that, that was a fearful process sort of over and over and over. And multiple times people have asked you, like, well, ask me, what is it, what did it take? Like, cause I would like to do that. And I was like, I think part of me was just set up genetically. Like, again, that pushback on authority, that strong will. Also, I've never struggled and I don't know what it is because some in my family really struggle with this, but I've never struggled with like self-worth or self-dignity. Um, despite like even watching some of my, one of my kids desperately struggle with it. And I, and I mentioned that to say part of my work with Imaginarium has been to help people understand their inherent worth and dignity, because then all of a sudden, once you're operating and living out of that space, like the world opens up that you can ask those questions that you can push back, that you do deserve to fight like this, you know, whatever it, it just, that posturing, all of a sudden opens the world up to you in a way. So I think early on I was taught, you know, don't ask questions, don't push back, don't do this, take these answers. And had I not had some sense, and I don't know where it came from, so let's just chalk it up, but some sense of like, no, it's actually okay to push back and it's okay to ask questions. And that just came from that self-confidence, which has served me well. So I'm hoping to keep cultivating that in people. That's so uh, fascinating and, and a blessing that you kind of have had that um, inherent sense of, of worth. What a gift that is. Um, I think my questioning hasn't been rooted in a sense of worth so much as a, um, a, a fight. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, because of the, the childhood that I had where like, it's almost as if you, if someone has you under their thumb long enough, right? And then once that gets lifted even slightly, like, and I realized that, that, the world opened up once I kind of went into foster care and was out of that abusive situation. Then my, my desire to know truth, to kind of forge my own way went into overdrive, right? Mm. You know, like if no one told me down, well then I'm about to see what's out here. Mm. Um, and for me, once a question pops up, I cannot let it go. Like I, I can't mm. get rid of it. it. It is always there until I find some way to resolve it. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other thing that I found interesting about your story is how, how much it involved people, um, because that, that to me was really important. I was in a, uh, an interview I recorded last week with someone, I was sharing with them what made my views about um, the LGBTQ community shift. You know, I, I grew up similar to you did, love the sinner, hate the sin. And I got to college and as my theology was evolving, I kept looking for, for theological responses and justifications for why I didn't have to like condemn gay people, right? Mm -hmm. And so I read anything I could find, mm -hmm. but it didn't matter. Like at the end of the day, none of the theology I read is what changed me. Mm -hmm. What changed me was being on campus, seeing our LGBTQ club and seeing how loving those people were. Mm -hmm. And I just like remember thinking one day, if I believe God is love and I see more love in them than I think I even see in myself, how can I deny that God is present within them? And if God is present with them, then, then fuck my theology, right? Like right, right. That, that's all that has to matter. Yeah. And, and that speaks to what you're saying. Like 
these words on the page are limited, right? Mm -hmm. This book is limited. But if we think there is an infinite God or spirit out there or whatever, what do we do with the spirit that exists beyond the page, beyond the boundaries Mm -hmm. of the book, right? Mm -hmm. And how do we engage with that? And so often I think we engage through creation, right? And parts of creation are are people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's fascinating to, to kind of hear that mirrored in your story as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, yes, and we see the divine in the people and the world around us. Yes, 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 yes. That's where it, I started listening and realized it had been speaking the whole time. <laughs> so, you know, I can imagine folks that might be listening that um, are not nearly as radical or open in their spiritualities, uh, you know, as you or myself, and that are wondering, you know, that are coming from a framework of, you know, this is my belief system. My belief system kind of fits over my life, my relationships, and informs those decisions. Um, and it, it can be frightening kind of taking out the foundation of your belief system brick by brick because you don't know immediately what's going to replace it. Um, and so I'm wondering what, going through this journey the way you have, what perspective would you offer those that are kind of have their hand on the bricks and are beginning to pull it out but are feeling that fear not knowing what you replace it with? How do you move through those in-between times, you know, when you still have to live life, but you don't know what system is going to exist for yourself? Yeah, there is such a great question. There exists in all of us, I believe, a courage that we need and should tap into. And that courage is, as you said, brick by brick, as you're starting to pull some pieces away from your foundational system, The beauty that I can offer and that was offered to me is like this wide open world on the other side of that structure that you have built or someone has given you and you placed around yourself or you place yourself in to know that those structures are not serving. First of all, they're probably not serving you well or as well as you think they are, but also an equally of importance. And sometimes more importantly, they're not serving everyone else. And so when you become um, more horizontally focused, where you're paying attention to what's literally happening to the world around you, it should, and it can offer you some courage to be like, okay, I'm going to take a brick out or I'm going to take two bricks out and I'm begin to peer through and understand that there is a better world to be built. And it's not clearly already built. Damn. Oh, we have so much work to do, but demolishing and dismantling sort of those closed off boxes piece by piece. It offers you, I just, I keep, I keep going back to my questions. I started searching for better answers and then I realized I was asking the wrong questions or it was time to build on those questions and move on to new questions. Um, and it was not some slippery slope, right? That you're like headed. If you, if you ask that question or you start believing this thing or stop believing this part of your theology that, Oh, it's a slippery slope. And like, like take, Hell, I I don't know what your listeners are fearful of specifically, but for me, it was early on like fearing hell, right? And then I realized like that hell was literally existing in the world around me and I I was missing it. My theology, my perspective and my view and my worldview was missing it. And so I was trying to, and I've tried my whole life to be a follower of Jesus, right? I still consider that even in my post-Christian, post-theistic, I think the life of Jesus was lived in such a way that is like, okay, I can, I can do some good shit like that man definitely did on this earth. And the repercussions of the energy that he did is still affecting us 2000 years later, no matter how you clarify the life of Jesus. 
right? So that compels me, me even recognizing the work of Jesus and what Jesus was all about compels me to ask better questions, compels me to make sure that the answers that my box and my foundation has been built on don't just work for me. So that, I don't know, there's a drive there and a courage there that's been despite having like, okay, but this is the way and it's going to be all easy and it's all going to be good on the other side. Like it hasn't been all easy. It hasn't been all good, but it's way more rewarding to actually know that I'm a part of the good work, like efforting to be a part of the good work, trying to be a part of the good work and owning when I'm not, <laughs> that's part of the process. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's my encouragement. My encouragement is like, take the leap because there is not hell to pay on the other side of taking the risk and taking the leap. Like the hell is right here right now. Um, and so we can get on the other side of this and start working to dismantle all that together. Yeah. I, I affirm that. I, um, I've experienced something similar, no matter what transformation or change I've gone through, I've never regretted going through it. Mm-mm. Even if it's some of the most painful moments in my life, I would still go back and make the same choice to go through that change, to let go of whatever I'm letting go, to deconstruct what I'm deconstructing. And and I can't even logically explain why, except to say that there's there's a deeper experience of myself individually and myself in relation to creation that I'm living into that that makes a difference. It's it's like incalculable to be honest. Um, and, and, and in comparison to the pain, like it just, it doesn't matter. I'm I'm more deeply me and us and we at the same time, you know? Yes. All of that. And I feel more peaceful. Like I feel a sense of peace and an understanding of peace now that my, you know, 15 year old self that had all the answers, like had all the answers, knew everything, you know, life was in God, everything fit so easily together. Like that girl was actually not peaceful. Like, especially once she lived and started living into the world around her, she was not peaceful. And so now, despite having, I don't have all the answers, but I sort of know, I know the work and I know the, I know enough of the way that leaning forward into like the better way, the better ways to go like, okay, okay, this, I'm asleep good at night because this is good work. Thinking about um, Jesus, you know, one of the primary messages that I always take away from his model is that anytime you um, desire and begin to do the work, the important work, there will be loss. There, there will be a price that is paid for that. Yeah. Um, and for some people that go through these like deeply personal religious transformations, political transformations, you lose, it could be a job, you could lose relationships, people. Um, and so can you speak to what those losses were like for you? And then also what was gained after you yeah. lost whatever it was you lost? So there's a couple specifics that immediately come to mind. Um, first is I didn't speak much and I don't have to speak much specifically about the situation, but when I left the church and left my position at the church, I was effectively co-pastoring the church in the last year and a half of my time there. And I was named the associate, the associate pastor, um, but effectively co-pastoring. And I was, I chose alongside my friend who she and I ended up uh, co-founding Imaginarium together, but we chose to sort of call out some toxic things that were happening, not just in the leadership, but in the system that the church was built on and continued to be working out of and through. 
and we chose to name it. So one, we were resigning to go create this beautiful thing that I thought we were sort of trying to do within the church and it realized it wasn't going to go anywhere. So then we were like, okay, we still have this beautiful new thing that we want to push into, but also as we're leaving, we're going to name the toxicity that was present. And I still stand by choosing to do that. But in doing that, oh, I had, I not only lost, I mean, I was effectively, let me clarify this. I was effectively the one, talk about pastoring. I was the one effectively pastoring in, in the purest sense, that community. And as we had gone through LGBT plus inclusion in 2015, this was 2016 and 17. So we were sort of just coming into our own as a new community. Um, and as I had to leave that space because I was not allowed to thrive there and I thought the system, and I still believe that the system then was messed up, I spoke out on it. And so I had people, not only did I lose people and, and some of the people chose, a lot of people chose to not come with me, so to speak, to Imaginarium. Um, I also had people like shift my narrative where it was like, well, Melissa, she's just no longer Christian or she's just no, like in ways that were not like affirming my own journey. It was like, no, 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 you don't fit in this box anymore because you don't want to do it like we wanted to do it. And your work and how much um, you pastored us ultimately means nothing. Like that's what I heard. Like it ultimately means nothing to us because you're ruining sort of this beautiful thing that we thought we had. And I was like, it was only beautiful on the outside guys and gals and people. It was not healthy on the inside. So anyways, it was a huge risk. And I walked away from a very good salary. There were only four of us on staff at that church, but it was a predominantly white church and we had money. And I chose to walk away from that salary um, which has existed in us changing houses. I'm in half the size house that we were in before, which is fine because I'm damn peaceful. But, you know, you risk, you take risks in these choices. And so I lost people, I lost friendships, I lost, ultimately my biggest thing is that people, people not believing in the story I was saying is really ultimately still feels like my biggest loss, not the money, not the house, not the whatever. It was that people wanted to change the narrative and wouldn't take the time to believe me. And I just realized some people won't listen to you. That's a part of life for a lot of people already. And now I've experienced it too. Um, but yeah, so just choosing to take the stand for the good things that we think are right and be it when we chose to take the stand on LGBT inclusion, we lost half our people and 75% of our money when we took that stand. And that was well worth the stand and the take and the sacrifice to do something that we felt was needed and necessary and long overdue as a Christian institution. Um, and then me leaving that institution later because other things were toxic um, was a huge sacrifice. And I've not only, you know, lost things, my family has lost things. You know, my daughter is hyper involved in a dance world that costs a ton of money. <laughs> so I have all these side hustles to like try to make those things work. Um, but anyway, so I think the other side of it, again, it comes down to me knowing that I'm actually a part of things where there is help and there's accountability present. And that to me is way better than being a part of a larger institution where you maybe get a higher paycheck and a bigger platform, but you don't have those things existing um, across the board. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. Like I can't. What else feels important to name about your story that I haven't asked about or talked or we haven't talked about yet? I love to make sure people know, especially if you're just 
meeting me or hearing me speak about myself, I should say, for the first time. Sometimes I have people that, in a small platform now, I say, like, I did a solo record and I sold hundreds of copies. Like, I'm no big wig by any means. And even when we were big wig, it wasn't a big deal. Anyway, some people have followed me. And what I would love to hear anybody to hear me say about myself is that I have committed to be a habitual learner. Like not just formally, like in school, which I just finished school and I'm so thankful that I did. And I'm actually really grateful, despite all of its also quirks, that I did it a part of CTS and make lovely people like you that I'm now in relationship with and challenged by and inspired by. Um, but I think that's something that I've come to take pride in in the best sense that that's the kind of people humanity should be <laughs> our habitual learners which means we i stay curious i stay open um i i don't feel like i hold anything at this point except the idea of inherent worth connection and responsibility those are my highest values and then outside of that i feel like the rest of my like convictions if you will if i want to use that language can still be shaped like they will be shaped and can continually be shaped and pushed back on and um, with the world around me. So I think that's something that I've come to learn is important about who I am and who I like, I want my kids to be that that's what I'm trying to instill in my 10 year old, almost 11 year old and 14 year old, um, is to be a habitual learner, which means you understand your worth, right? You understand your worth and that you deserve to speak and ask questions, but so does everybody else. You understand those connections and then you daily are figuring out your responsibilities. Um, and so I think, if anything, that's what I would love people to know about me, that there's no perfect Melissa over here doing it all right. It's that like I live in a posture of trying daily to figure those things out um, and do them better and create a better world. I mean, that's the Imaginarium's whole thing is we are a space to um, imagine a better world and then figure out how we intentionally make it so. And we do that together in relationships. Very well said. I love that. You know, habitual learner. And it's, it's important, that value of kind of openness and flexibility, I think, is how we continue to grow. So I love that you, you named that. Um, second to last question, the penultimate question, um, is uh, I like to give my guests a chance to ask me a question. Um, for whatever reason, I have yet, no one I've asked has declined, which surprised me. People seem to come up with questions on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's catching me off guard. So yeah, is there a question that you would like to, to ask me? How do you find hope today? Hmm. Such a timely question. How do I find <laughs> hope today? Um, you know, I think there's a couple different sources of hope that I have. Um, one is in the people around me. I've been very uh, impressed and surprised by the people that I'm in relationship with. Um, even those that I, I don't think I have a strong relationship with have surprised me over the last week, um, either in their response to the injustice that the world is witnessing right now, or in their awareness of how it might be affecting me, or, or their awareness of their own privilege and trying to, to utilize their platforms appropriately. I forgot that I linked those earlier today to make a call. I was being lazy. Um, so the fact that I see um, people, like an increased awareness of people doing the important work has, has, it gives me hope. But then I think it's, it's also buried somewhere deep within me. Um, you know, I, I think of everything that I'm holding right now that I'm going through and 
I should have had some sort of like mental breakdown by now at some point over the last few months, but it has not happened. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that there's like in the deepest parts of me, the seed of resilience um, that is affirmed every time I take a step in the right direction, if you will, right? So every time I step more deeply into my fullness or my purpose, um, there's just a, a gut level stillness that I experience that lets me know I am where I need to be. Even if all hell is breaking loose, there's something important for me about knowing that I'm where I need to be. And if, I, if I'm where I need to be now, I trust that I will get where I need to be in the future, right? And if, if I know that, then I can keep moving. I can just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Um, and, and if I can keep putting one foot in front of the other, then I also believe I am, I'll continue to be able to use my gifts to impact and shape the world around me, right? And so at some point things will improve um, because of those, those reasons. And so I think those are the places that, that give me hope on a day-to-day -day basis, especially in the midst of all that's happening right now. I love that. That's so inspiring. It feels very deep inside you and you see it outside. I, uh, Andre Henry, I don't know if you're familiar with I've heard Andre. Of him. Andre. Mm -hmm. he's, uh, he's just becoming a friend, but I followed him online for a while. Anyways, he has a email weekly thing called Hope and Hard Pills. And mm. I just love that. That is sort of if I can look back over like my spiritual journey specifically, it used to be like hope, 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 like we have hope and said certainty. And when I sort of got rid of that, those ideas, ultimately not the hope, I realized that hope is always right alongside sort of the struggles of our life. And those things don't have to like overtake each other. They'll always be part, they'll always be in relationship. We're back to relationality. Right. <laughs> um, but I love, I mean, that to me is real. Like, and, and also like, yeah, that's real. I don't know that. I love that. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for answering my question, Ben. Of course. Thanks for a great question. Um, so finally, I like to um, leave my listeners with a quote or a practice um, or a recap, some way for them to continuously integrate the themes that we've spoken about in the podcast. And so as you think about the relationship between hope and hard pills, um, or letting go of discomfort um, or self-worth or anything that we've touched on today, is there something that you would offer the listeners that they can kind of um, meditate on or focus on for two to three minutes a day to begin to kind of instill some of these themes more deeply within them? Yeah. So um, a practice that we do at Imaginarium at every one of our gatherings that actually my daughter leads now um, is something that we started the very first time we met with Imaginarium. And the message, if you will, the teaching that I gave that day um, was around the um, phrase, stop, breathe, know your word. And I did a whole teaching surrounding it. And it's probably a good time to revisit it that so often we wait for hard circumstances to take our breath away. Like, oh my gosh, I watched that video of George Floyd and it, it takes my breath away. Oh my gosh, I'm seeing what's happening. So like with the protests and it takes your breath away. Like for us to not wait on those moments to stop and to breathe, but to recognize like in this moment, whatever moment it is, moment it is for you or for me, for us to stop, 
collectively honor, recognize your own breath and your own worth and your own value. And in doing that, in doing that little practice, we tap our fingers together. I don't know if they'll see us or just hear us, but we tap our thumb all the way to our pinky. And we say it at least three times at Imaginarium, but I always encourage people use it whenever you need it. to just simply tap your fingers and say that stop, breathe, know your worth. And hopefully in doing that, and you taking that back and starting with that loving of self, right? That honoring of self, hopefully that will in turn shape you to honor and see and love the world and those around you too. So that's my practice. I love that. And, and as simple as it is, uh, I find it extraordinarily meaningful every time we do it in Imaginarium. Uh, so I just want to affirm the beauty of that practice. Um, Melissa, I'm so glad you were able to join me today for this conversation. It has been wonderful. Um, if people want to connect with you online or to, to even join Imaginarium, um, how can they do that? What information should they know? Yeah, so I'm Melissa Green with an E um, on all those social media channels. And Imaginarium is We Are Imaginarium on all the social channels except for Twitter. I think we're Imaginarium Community. That one was already taken. Um, our website's Imaginarium.life. Um, we meet right now in the midst of COVID in this crazy season. We're meeting weekly, sometimes twice a week for a midweek happy hour, which I'll get to today, which is no agenda, just show up and get to know people or relax or vent whatever's needed in the moment. And then we're doing weekly gatherings literally almost every Sunday afternoon um, that always involve some practices like what we just taught or mentioned, typically a short teaching either by myself or a guest. Sometimes there's a panel, always dialogue and conversation and sometimes music. Music's still a part of my life um, and I value it deeply. So uh, imaginarium.life is our website. You can get on our email list. I just, I'd love to connect in all the ways. Awesome. And I'll put those links in the episode description as well. Thank you. Thank you for joining me, Melissa. It's been great to have you. Thank you, Ben. Love you. Love your work. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Invisible Truths podcast. If you appreciated hearing Melissa's story, please take a moment to follow her on social media and to check out the Imaginarium website. As Melissa mentioned, Imaginarium is a work and a community that is near and dear to her heart, and it's all about helping each of us discover the magic within us. And having been part of this community for the last several months, I can attest to the wonder and beauty within it. So take a moment to check out the website and even consider joining one of our online sessions sometime in the future. I don't think you'll regret it. I also want to mention that if you are someone that has appreciated the stories that have been featured on this podcast over the last few months, or if you're interested in learning how to tell your story yourself, but you don't know where to start, please reach out to me. I would love the chance to work with you to help you figure out how to tell your story. Even if it's not in podcast form, we can find a way for you to share your story privately, just with yourself even. But I, I would love the chance to work with you and to help you find the wisdom and the power within your story because it's there for everyone. We just have to know how to tap into it. So if you're curious or interested, reach out to me on social media or email me. I'd love the chance to work with you. Once again, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Invisible Truths Podcast. Until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.